Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Did you see this? Department of Justice drops the Michael Flynn case, sparing President Trump the risk of a presidential pardon, plus the prognosis. Well, folks, the prognosis is that U.S. COVID-19 cases rise 2.4%, deaths top 75,000, the complete latest virus update, and... What's the House going to do next week? What's Speaker Pelosi going to do next week? She spoke to our very own David Weston, the latest on that as well. We've got an all-star panel, all-star panel. To kick things off, Justin Sink from the Bloomberg White House team. Ross Cullen, correspondent for Feature, news, for feature Story News in Paris. Ross is going to give us an update on how the Europeans are doing. And Adam Hodge, Senior Vice President at Aerial Investments, to give us a complete economic rundown. And... Adam Goodman, Republican media strategist, columnist, and partner at Ballard Partners in Washington, D.C. So we've got an all-star, all-star panel. Breaking news, folks. The Department of Justice has dropped the Michael Flynn case. They've dropped it, totally dropped it. President Trump has said that the Obama administration was, quote-unquote, scum, end quote, for prosecuting him. Reading from Chris Drum and Billy House reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal under sustained pressure from President Donald Trump, the Justice Department took the highly unusual step of dropping its prosecution of Michael Flynn, the president's first national security advisor, even though he had pleaded guilty more than two years ago to lying to FBI agents. That's where we begin tonight with Justin Sink, Bloomberg White House reporter. Uh, Justin, what's the reaction from the White House as it goes for Michael Flynn? Yeah, I mean, we heard from President Trump a, a couple hours ago, and, and he was really ecstatic with the decision, said that uh, it, it improved his thinking about Michael Flynn that had already been a sort of high regard. And, uh, you know, he attacked the Obama administration as as human scum for initiating the prosecution against Flynn. Now, uh, you know, I, uh, the prosecution actually happened after President Trump had, had gotten into office. Flynn was interviewed uh, at the White House while, where he was working by FBI agents. But it's part of, I, I think this feeds into the argument that we've heard a lot from the president and his supporters, which is the idea that, that Washington was uh, in some way sort of uh, colluding against the president, uh, that there was a deep state that existed that, that was out to get the president. And obviously, these FBI documents have fed into that. They've also fed into perceptions by the president's opponents who say, hey, once again, the Justice Department under Bill Barr has done a political favor for the president and, and kind of gone outside 
what the Justice Department has traditionally done in cases like this. You know, I, you go back to this. I mean, and what the and Eli Lake was really out front of all this, but our very own Eli Lake, Wimber columnist. But you know, for for I I want to just read some of the remarks that you were alluding to that the president said. Justin Sink, Bloomberg White House reporter. Um, he said, quote, he's an innocent man who was targeted in order to try and take down a president, end quote. That's President Trump talking about uh, Flynn. And then he goes on to call the Obama administration, quote, human scum, end quote, and said it's treason. I mean, these are some really, even for President Trump, I mean, these are really uh, blunt talk from from the president. And in many ways, I, I would imagine that Republicans and the administration would, would view this as, as vindication of sorts. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the, the sort of repeated phrase that we've heard from the White House and from the president was that the entire Russia investigation was a hoax, a witch hunt, uh, an effort to make something out of nothing. I, I think it is important in the Flynn case to remember that uh, in fact, he, he did what he was accused of, right? He uh, held secret talks with the Russian ambassador after President Obama uh, implemented sanctions on Russia, hid that information from the media and Vice President Mike Pence, which ultimately led to his firing, lied to the FBI about it, admitted to lying to the FBI about it. But the only sort of new evidence that has emerged is that in a strategy session before going into interview Mike Flynn, FBI agents ask themselves, well, what, you know, what is the purpose of this interview? Are we trying to get him to lie about this case? Uh, are we trying to, to get him into a situation where President Trump might fire him? Obviously, the president and his critics say that even having that conversation is uh, sort of across, uh, out of bounds and, and unusual. I think a lot of people on the other side say, yeah, I mean, the FBI routinely tries to sort of catch people in lies uh, in, in interviews, and it's incumbent on somebody when talking to an FBI agent not to, to lie about their circumstances. And so I think you're going to hear a lot of celebration from, from the president in the White House saying, hey, this is vindication that, that the Justice Department was out to get the president, uh, and also a lot of criticism from Democrats who say, you know, this is something that happens every day, and, and Michael Flynn's getting the political favor from, from one of the president's allies. Just to close this loop before we move on to coronavirus, pandemic, and stimulus, uh, Jerry Nadler, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, New York Democrat, said in a tweet, quote, Flynn pleaded guilty to lying to investigators. The evidence against him is overwhelming. Now politicized Department of Justice is dropping the case. So you've got Democrats who are now saying that this is political and Republicans saying that they're vindicated. So uh, th as the world turns, uh, moving on. OK, so next week, House comes back. Speaker Pelosi trying to advance a bill. She told our very own David Weston in a Bloomberg television interview with him earlier today that she's optimistic uh, that that she'll be able to get a deal. But that, you know, the politics still exists here. How optimistic, Justin, is the White House that a next round of, that it'll be a quick deal to have the next round of economic stimulus spending? Yeah, I'm not sure that the White House is necessarily looking for a quick deal here as much as advancing a whole bunch of the president's priorities that he feels have been put off for a while. And they, you know, you get the sense from conversations from the president's public statements, think that Democrats, you know, are really eager to get this, this aid to states specifically. And a lot of especially big blue states like New York and Illinois and California are facing dramatic budget shortfalls. Republican states aren't quite in the same position, although 
you know, Governor Hogan of Maryland, a, a Republican, has said that that they're they're fighting through that as well. But you're going to see the president in the White House bring in a lot of stuff, whether it is uh, immunity for companies that are starting to reopen, whether it is uh, new restrictions on whether cities and states can can declare themselves as sanctuary cities, whether it's expensing for American companies that are are uh, building new kind of manufacturing facilities back in the United States, whether it's the the payroll tax cut that the president's been advocating for f- since the beginning of this and has never really gained traction among Democrats, especially those who point out it wouldn't benefit the you know millions of Americans who are now unemployed. And so you know there's this whole laundry list of things that the White House wants, but they feel, or at least you get the sense that they feel that they can put that uh, a little bit on the back burner to try to exert more concessions out of the Democrats. All right. So in just a minute or so that we have have left, Justin St. Bloomberg, White House reporter, and a great guy because he's an Eagles fan, uh, we should <laughs> note that there's some uh, there's been some reports by J.P. Finley at NBC uh, DC. He covers the Redskins that the Eagles are going to play the Redskins in week one. Week one, Justin. <laughs> Well, let's certainly hope things are open open back up by then. My real question is, what is the difference at FedEx Field between a normal game and a game with social distancing? Because See, I, because I'm on in a DC market, I'm being so incredibly polite to not. <laughs> I'm just going to stop talking and toss the bread. How about you know what? Listen, I got to tell you, my second favorite team in the league is the Redskins. But you know, I'm an Eagles fan till the day I die. All right, Justin, great reporting. Thanks for all of your great work. That's that's Justin Sink, Bloomberg News White House reporter. Coming up, we break down uh, all the latest on COVID-19. I'm Kevin Cirilli, uh, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. It's hoagie night. For Kev, it's hoagie night. I'm getting hoagies after the show. Italian store. Best hoagie. I mean, I love I love hoagies, and I haven't had one all all pandemic. So I say, you know what? If I can't go home, if I can't go to my uncle's, got to find the next best thing. Uh, joining us on the line, I don't know if they have hoagies in Paris. Do they? Ross Cullen, correspondent for Feature Story News in Paris. Ross, can you get a hoagie in Paris? Or I guess in Italy, you could get an Italian hoagie. I can tell you, Kevin, one of the best things uh, about it, one of the bright sides about this uh, lockdown is that the boulangeries, the bakeries here in Paris have all been open. So we've had the best bread for the past few weeks. Well, all right. You know, in D.C., I see it all over the place. A lot of people are baking bread. I'm like, all right. I mean, if, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. Get the yeast, get the flour, the, whatever you do. But I, I agree, Ross. You're in a good spot. Get a croissant for me. All right. So the last time you were on the program, it was pretty bad. I mean, you did great reporting, but, you know, I was right there with you, buddy. We were in the – they were locking us in, shelter in place, and it was just like we were – we hadn't hit the peak of the curve. We hadn't we hadn't hit the top of the peak or whatever before the, the curve flattened. Now, you guys are ahead of us. You're a couple of weeks ahead of us. My understanding, based upon the incredible reporting of people like yourself and my Bloomberg colleagues, is that – that things are starting to slowly pick up again. What's the latest? How? What's what's the latest on the European front, Ross? That's right. They're starting to pick up a little bit. We've had uh, some announcements today. France, uh, the UK as well. Both countries looking to the 11th of May this coming Monday uh, to start to ease their restrictions. France has actually uh, divided the country into red and green zones. Two zones, and that, depending on which zone you live in, 
then that is how much your lockdown is going to be uh, eased. It really is a maximum caution game, though, and doing things as slowly and as carefully as possible. Europe really has been hit pretty badly, uh, with the UK as well now uh, registering the largest number of fatalities out of all those European countries. So what, is it, so what does that mean in terms of the zone? Are, are What types of stores are open? What are some of the restrictions? This is very interesting to an American audience because we're, you're about, you know, as you mentioned, you're like a week ahead of us. Um, and so states over here are starting to, to reopen gradually and whatnot. But what does it look like in, in, in Europe? Uh, for Paris, for example, I mean, when they do reopen, what stores will reopen? Well, Paris is, as you might imagine, uh, one of the red zones where the virus is continuing to circulate actively. There's incredible pressure still on intensive care units, emergency rooms as well. And that means uh, the opening of restaurants, bars and cafes is not on the horizon anytime soon. Uh, What it does mean if you live in a green zone, for example, the south of the country, that means that in June you will be able to open your restaurants. Uh, That means that from this Monday, parks are going to open as well as all manner of different stores, clothes stores, barbers, florists, etc. Um, but in Paris, there's going to be some tight restrictions, and it's going to be obligatory to wear a face mask if you're using public transport. So it sounds like it sounds like the southern part of France is, is the equivalent to to some of the heartland states uh, and southwest states uh, in the United States. If, 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 right? I mean, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, the number of cases there is often measured by the uh, just the region, but you have to, if you look at Paris, it's just by the city because uh, it's such an intense number of people who've been testing positive or who've been taken to intensive care in the cities in Paris and along the German border. As you can imagine, uh, Europe, so many states all closely uh, packed together with the open borders as well that those frontier sections, Kevin, have really been badly hit. But down south, uh, in the open countryside, in the mountains, uh, where it's less densely populated in France, that's where they've got the green zones uh, and they are able to enter lockdown, uh, exit lockdown or enter the easing period uh, more freely. Ross Cullen, correspondent for Feature Story News, he's uh, located in Paris. He's really just been all over Europe uh, throughout this pandemic and doing incredible reporting. Ross, can people still go country to country? Is it possible right now or no? Is that is that not possible? No. That's not possible, uh, Kevin, unless you've got an essential reason why you need to leave. Uh, Police checking you at the airport. What's your essential reason you need to be flying out of France? There are very few flights. Uh, The borders are closed as well until until at least uh, June. It really has been... It really has been surreal, particularly in Paris. We're talking about the most visited country in the world, France and and Paris, one of the top destinations, not in Europe, but in the world for visitors. Just empty. The Louvre, the world's most famous, the biggest museum. I was in a taxi the other day, and there's a police roadblock set up outside the Louvre, checking motorists. Why are you out and about? Do you have an essential reason to be out and about? And just devoid of tourists. It really has been this surreal So it is that. I mean, can you guys go on a run? Can you go on a walk or no? Yeah, you can go on a run as long as it is no more than a thousand meters from your house. Wow. Okay, so here in DC, 
here in DC, I mean, uh, you know, it is it's it's weird to go to the na- I I'm fortunate enough to be able to run the National Mall. It's one of my favorite places to run or, or even the trails over here, but it is it's very hearing you say the Louvre and, you know, the Eiffel Tower and all of these iconic places. It's it's sometimes I think we forget that all of these places are still very much shut down. Quickly, um Italy, what's going on with Italy? I know you had spent some time early in the pandemic there before you got out uh, because of the situation, but how are the Italians coping? Are they moving to zones like France, or are they uh, still hunkered down? Uh, they've started to open gradually. We were there uh, reporting at the start of the pandemic, and parks have now reopened. And the sight to see children uh, and dogs as well, just exercising, people are out, families, uh, really taking advantage of the fresh air, the spring sunshine, because they have been forced to stay indoors, all exercise. Kevin, you're saying running in the National Mall, all exercise in Spain and, and Italy during this uh, lockdown has had to be taking place inside your home. Wow. Wow. Remarkable. And and what are you hearing? And and honestly, uh, can you stay for a, over the over the break or no? Because I have a couple more questions for you. Is that okay? Can you yeah, hang I'm on? Here. Yeah, okay. Well, let me let me stay with the conditions then for right now. Uh, we've got about a minute left for this block. Um, what are you hearing, uh, Ross Cullen, about uh, how how the Italians in particular? What what specifically is starting to open up in Italy? They have started to open uh, some stores, such as um, some closed stores for children, stationers, some bookstores as well. But there are restrictions. If you're going into a store. You have to stay socially distant. There are markings on the floor to make sure that customers don't cross paths with one another. Uh, And if you're queuing outside to get into that store, of course, you have to stay six feet. Uh, So the restrictions are still in place, but some stores are starting to open up and restaurants in Italy are now available as well for takeaway. All right, Ross Collins, stay on the line because coming up, we're going to ask you how the Europeans are responding to China and what's going on with the European response to China. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Record it's set this year, but it's no longer down for the year. It closed up 125 points today to 89.80, a few points above where it started 2020. The Dow gained 211 points to finish at 23,876. The S&P added 33 points. People on lockdown, well, you're spending more quality time with your TVs and video games. Viacom CBS reported record subscriber growth for its CBS All Access and Showtime streaming services. Nintendo sold more of its Switch consoles during the same quarter than even it expected. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli continues. I'm Nancy Lyons. This is Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. 
I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Earlier, we were talking with Ross Cullen about how the Europeans are handling reopening the economy. They're about a week ahead of us, folks. And Ross is still on the line. Ross is correspondent for Future Story News. He's based in Paris right now. Ross, what has the European response been to China? Are they as, uh, do they got questions for, for Xi Jinping? They do have questions for Xi Jinping, and they had written a report to mark uh, the diplomatic relations between the EU and China, the 45th anniversary. But there was a sentence in that report that was due to be published, Kevin, that, that remarks on China's what they call the EU called global disinformation campaign, pressure from Beijing, and that sentence was removed from the report. So there are some uh, reports here in, in Europe. Wait, 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 uh, wait, wait. <laughs> Ross, Colin, I got to interrupt. It was removed from the report by who? Who who deleted it? Either China has, if you're Europe, Europe, either you think China has a disinformation campaign or it doesn't. What is it? What is it, Ross? The, well, the EU, the EU did remove the remark from its report, but notably quite a few other countries, um, France, Lithuania, EU members did actually publish links to the original report showing that they are still concerned about uh, what they see as a possible disinformation campaign. But on the other hand, they do want to preserve their uh, fruitful trading relationship and their diplomatic relationship with China. There's actually a summit still meant to be taking place in Germany later this year, Kevin. Wow. A summit on what? A summit on China or is China going to attend or what? Yeah. President Xi is meant to be attending in Germany, meeting with other EU leaders, talking about those relations. Uh, and no doubt, because it'll be the end of the summer as well, of course, a, such a, an important and significant year in many ways uh, for that relationship. Uh, the, the, this possible disinformation campaign uh, that was in the report and then taken out, that will be discussed for sure. What about the Italians? How do the Italians feel about, about uh, the way China's handled this? Well, they... Um, received gratefully. I mean, when China started to get over uh, the peak of its problem and it was able to start uh, offering some of its services, some of its personal protective equipment, uh, for example, sending masks and gowns to Italy, uh, gratefully receiving those Chinese deliveries into Italy to help them combat the, the virus. So China was quite keen to, once it had got a, got a handle on the problem, be able to share some of its expertise. And countries like Italy uh, willingly accepted, accepted that, that aid. Interesting. Okay. And then Germany, you mentioned Germans. I mean, the, Merkel has just been, you know, doing the whole 5G thing, for lack of a better word, with Xi Jinping. Uh, how's that? I mean, how is, uh, do, do you anticipate? I mean, it sounds like it's mixed. I mean, that's what I'm hearing from you, Ross, is that this is mixed, that the Europeans have a very mixed reaction uh, to, to, to what China has done. Some countries are, are deeply, deeply skeptical, as the United States is. Uh, and other countries are, are trying to continue. It sounds like they're putting business over national security, dare I say. Well, yeah. So if you look at the U.S. versus uh, the uh, Europe on this. So when it comes to, for example, uh, the Trump administration has definitely been more confrontational towards China than Europe has. When it comes to 5G, uh, the Trump administration, again, we heard from Mike Pompeo a lot about that uh, around that time, speaking to Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister, more confrontational when it comes to Huawei. But France and Germany, the UK saying that if Huawei is going to be involved in building some of those 5G networks, it won't be at the risk of national security. They are saying that it is possible to keep Huawei out from except for its network getting involved near military bases or 
areas that are particular of particular national sensitivity. So the Europeans, yeah, definitely treading a finer line and maybe more receptive to overtures from China than the U.S. is. It's, it's remarkable. I could do a whole show on that. All right. Thank you so much, Ross. Come back on anytime you want. Ross Collin, co correspondent for Feature Story News based in Paris, uh, walking through all of that. Pivoting now to 2020. Uh, this is the 2020 race continues to heat up. Speaking of China, when's Joe Biden going to release his China plan? Adam Hodge, senior vice president at Ariel Investments, uh, a former, uh, he previously worked at the Treasury Department in the Obama administration. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Let's talk about Joe Biden's presidential campaign. This is going to be an economic, uh, an economic election. How is the Biden campaign recalibrating for that? Uh, and what are they doing for that so that when they, we get to the fourth quarter ahead of Election Day, uh, you know, it's going to be an economic election, Adam? It absolutely is. But, Kevin, first of all, uh, great to be back with you and hope uh, you and the family are all, all Thank you, Adam. Healthy. Likewise for you, too, I, I my friend. I think the big focus for the Biden campaign is to offer a clear alternative uh, to, to to the White House and to, to Trump and to go big. I think they have to realize that the moment that we're in, 33 million Americans we now have, have now filed for unemployment, the, on the, the unemployment report tomorrow is going to be one of the worst we've ever seen, likely if not the worst we've ever seen. And uh, recognizing solving the, the both economic and, and health challenges that we face is going to require a total revamp of the playbook. And if uh, if the Biden campaign is smart, and they've got a lot of smart people on that team, with a lot of experience, everything I've heard from inside the campaign, they are already thinking, how can they go big? How can they really look at crafting a real package that offers a clear contrast, but also uh, can can give Democrats who are running for, for Congress and running for, for the Senate Something also to rally behind so they can march and then campaign and then govern on real solutions that they think will help the American people. You mentioned the uh, economic report tomorrow that's going to come up. Uh, and, and even just to read from uh, Bloomberg, the Bloomberg Terminal for a second, Reed Pickert's reporting, the number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits topped three million for a seventh straight week which signals, of course, little relief in sight for the economy since the coronavirus began closing the economy. Uh, so you hear that, just the unemployment numbers, and it, it's tough. I mean, you know, we led the story today with the General Flynn news, but it's tough to, for, for Biden world to break through. It really is. I mean, and, and I say that, you know, respectfully, because most Americans right now have a lot more pressing issues than to deal with the, the typical Republican-Democrat back-and-forth banter. That, that is that is true. I think the one thing that I, I think gets lost in the mix is Biden is actually um, practicing the, the right of leadership that I think you'd want. I mean, he is being socially distant. There are, are restrictions in, in states where he can't – I mean, legally cannot go travel to, to do events. And, and, um, and the president certainly has the bully pulpit uh, of, uh, and the assets of being – uh, being in, in the White House. That being said, what you've, you've seen Biden's lead actually expand in a number of the, the polls, not just national polls, but state state polls and, and some of the polls that were the, uh, you know, the Electoral College is, is going to decide who the next president is. So um, there will likely be time, and it, it's still early. It's not even June yet. We've got six months, a little less than six months to go. 
for Biden to make his his case and and find new and innovative ways to reach the American people. Uh, we've never done this before. We've never you know campaigned for president in a pandemic with this type of media environment, uh, and so uh, they they have to be. I think strategic and smart and aggressive and bold about how they look to reach reach people because it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen before. Adam Hodge, when you were at the Treasury Department, you've worked at Treasury. You know what they're dealing. I mean, you don't know what they're dealing with in terms of COVID nineteen, but you know how the inner workings of the Treasury Department are. And night, and we've got ninety seconds left. But what would a what would a Biden Treasury Department have to do? Uh, if if, the, if if Biden becomes president, what would be what would they do first? I mean, I know you're not. I, well, yeah, go ahead. I think one of the first things that they, they probably will look at doing is just increasing transparency and, and, and sunlight into the different programs that the Treasury Department is managing and showing where the money is going. Uh, if you look at Biden's record as vice president when he oversaw the um, stimulus plan, I mean, there was a huge oversight and accountability aspect of that where they showed the American people where every dollar was spent. And so I think part of the mandate for the next Secretary of the Treasury, if Biden is elected president, will be to to, um, to to look to give the American people some some comfort that there's no corrupt uh, intent with any of the funds that are being used, and then look for uh, a really robust and unprecedented economic recovery package. Because I think as the pace is still keep going up, we know that uh, deaths are still still increasing. Um, we've got a long way to go on on this crisis, and it's going to require. A response that meets the moment. Adam, are you still in DC? Still in DC. Oh uh, yeah, because you know I'm getting a hoagie <laughs> after the break. Where's the best place to get a hoagie in DC, Adam? Oh, Mangialardo's on Capitol Hill on Pennsylvania Avenue. It is uh, fantastic. Get the uh, G-Man. It's, All right. It's the place to go. All right. Thanks, Adam Hodge, Senior Vice President at Aerial Investments. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Hoagie Shopper Eater in Chief. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent from Bloomberg for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Finally, the weather cleared. Whoosh. I mean, come on. We got to keep the weather just a little bit nice. Uh, busy, busy uh, week for news. Tomorrow we have House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters. We're going to have Maxine Waters, Democrat from California. Lots to talk about uh, with her. I want to get her take on housing because, you know, the whole housing issue with the mortgage and mortgage finance and, you know, everything that Mark Calabria is doing. I want to know what what, uh, what she thinks about that, both for low-income earners and for high-income earners. And we're also going to have Mauricio Umansky on the show of the Agency RE. He is one of the top real estate uh, one of the top real estate firms in the country. We're thrilled to have Mauricio call in. So we're going to focus on some housing tomorrow and, yes, sports as well. Joining us on the line, I believe, is Adam Goodman. Adam, are you there? Kevin, I'm here. You're here. Adam Goodman, back on the line, back on the show. We're thrilled to have him back. He's a Republican media strategist, columnist, and partner at Ballard Partners in Washington, D.C. You wrote this incredible, incredible – I mean, I, I mentioned this on um, – uh, a, a meeting, a show meeting that we had earlier this week, I was like, if we switch to mail-in voting, could we be back in Florida with hanging chads? And you wrote this column called The 2000 Recount Only Worse, and it's on Real Clear Politics. 
Later this year, Americans, you write, may face a nightmare scenario from which there will be no escape or recourse. And this has nothing to do with any virus. It has to do with how elections are conducted in the United States. Tell us what your concern is. Go. Well, I can tell you, Kevin, as a veteran of the 2000 recount, um, having been there for the 30-odd days where we were trying to figure out who actually did win Florida, we still don't know. I mean, to be truthful, the, the final count was 537 votes. It was a very good shot of what we think happened. But with 20, I think it was like 17 million or 16 million votes that were cast, that was the best educated guess we had. But that was, frankly, Kevin, that was a like a practice run compared to what we're about to see, I think, in the, the fall election, especially if it's close, because – Uh, In Florida, the problem was you had uh, 67 different election supervisors with 67 different systems trying to figure out who won with butterfly uh, ballots and hanging chads, leaving everyone hanging in the ballots. But if you have uh, across the country, and especially in critical swing states, if you have massive voting by mail, which looks like it's very probable, uh, and this will be done for the first time in many of these states at that level. Uh, you're going to have all sorts of mistakes, all sorts of problems. And if it's close, you know what's going to happen. Uh, the, the side that's trailing is going to scream bloody murder. The side that's ahead will be trying to say it's over and try to declare victory. But the ones that are going to be more important than ever, and we saw this a little bit in Florida, that the cases, you know, ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court, It's going to be state Supreme Courts in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and North Carolina uh, who could hold the balance uh, of power and who wins and who doesn't. And there are a lot of politics, as you can appreciate, in all those courts. This is just fascinating to me because Adam Goodman's on the line. He's one of the nation's best-known media consultants for political, corporate, and advocacy campaigns, and we're thrilled and very grateful to have him on uh, our program because of his deep expertise. But this is just fascinating to me because when I think about this, and I get that that uh, that people are talking about this through the political prism, and you're not, which I appreciate, uh, especially for a show like this, because... Is the United States Postal Service even prepared to handle this? That's a question I have. Another question oh, that's that, a great question. Right. I mean, well, help me. I mean, but another question I have, and then just go after I ask these. Another question I have is, I mean, th- why are we in 2020 with all of the technological advancements that we have, artificial intelligence, you know, they're talking about apps that could track the virus. Why are we doing mail-in voting? Why aren't we doing something a little more tech-savvy? Adam, I just, just <laughs> let it rip, Adam. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, where do you begin? So right. That's how talk, I feel. And if, it, if, if there are too many questions, and I try to keep it focused. It's been a critique. But I, I try to keep my questions focused. But, yeah, it's <laughs> this doesn't feel rational to me. Go ahead. Okay. Here's, here's what I have for you tonight. It could change, of course, in a week. Uh, let's talk about the, the U.S. Postal Service. You, you saw this, I think it was this week, right, Kevin, that they just appointed a new postmaster general. Um, yes, that yes, person – that person is the most important person on earth, I think, in this election, potentially, because a lot of things that are going to happen with massive mail are going to uh, be jammed up, most likely, in places because of the U.S. Postal Service. So that postmaster general better be very good on his feet because he's going to yep. be uh, front and square in all of this. In terms of why we're doing mail versus te- something more tech savvy, 
The problem with the tech savvy, which really feels right, and at some point, I hope not too long from now, it will be right, is it's too open for uh, threats uh, to cybersecurity, right? Uh, to making sure that there are no hacking and there are no infiltrations. That's something that I think we haven't quite fully debugged enough to give us confidence that that will work. Uh, and so that's we're, we're not ready to go there. But the one thing, if it's helpful at all, uh, as a perspective, Kevin, in all of this, back in 2000, and I, and I, I hope that the listeners will take this for what it is. The most important thing that I and everybody else that was involved in the process uh, legitimately wanted uh, was something that the American public could believe in, and that yes. if we lose confidence in the in the power of the vote, the integrity of the vote, cut, if we lose that, everything else kind of comes crumbling down. So there was a bigger calling that I thought a lot of us had in that recount process which was even if the side we might have been rooting for didn't prevail, we wanted the American public's trust and confidence to uh, to prevail overall. So uh, that that's awesome, and and Adam, I really appreciate you coming on because you are such an insider and uh, on on this issue uh, and and on so many other ones. And I just have to ask you, and it's totally off topic, but are we going to get sports in the fall? <laughs> it's not off topic <laughs> because you. we desperately need it, Kevin. Yes, yes. I do. Uh, and the Eagles uh, are playing the Redskins in Week One, and I just want to make sure that I'm there for the game. Go ahead. Well, as a Tampa Bay as a Tampa Bay Bucks fan with Brady Ugh. coming south, Ugh. you better believe that we have a new appreciation for football. Look, we may. It's yeah, not the real be the estate same. down there. They all want to know where he's going to live. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, he already is kind of well. Of course, he's staying at Jeter's house, which is about twenty five thousand square feet of, of splendor. But we're going to have sports. The question is, are we going to have fans with and they're able to attend the sports? Don't know. Uh, but I, I think a, a season without professional sports or college sports uh, or any kind of sports uh, is, is a season you kind of want to sleep through. And I think we've done enough sleeping. We're ready to get back on the horse and start riding again. I would agree. And, and, and I think, you know, it's been, it's been really interesting to see how all the different leagues have been, have been handling this. But, you know, I think people really just want to, are craving something. I mean, I've been obsessed with the Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN. <laughs> right. It's just been, that's been riveting. And I, I'm interested to see what they do next. Cause they're going to have to make that some type of series. Uh, Adam, I really, really appreciate you coming on. And let me ask you just one final thing, sticking with sports just for a second. Do you think that they're going to be allowed to have fans in the stands or, I mean, and I'm not trying to pull anything out of you that you don't want to say, but are, are, they have to be weighing different types of options. I would imagine. They are, but, but none of them fit the conventional mold. When, when you think about, say, football, you're thinking about a stadium with 60,000, yeah. 70,000 fans. You know that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Uh, could you have 5,000 fans or 15,000 fans? And if so, what do you do? Is there like a, a rotating system where season ticket holders get every other game or every third game where they can actually attend? Uh, we're going to have to figure all this out on the fly, which, by the way, uh, for all those who are looking at the response that this country has had to COVID-19, uh, uh, we pray it's all going to end uh, end soon and end well. But we have to give credit to what we've all been able to accomplish yeah. as Americans on the fly. We're doing this on the fly. I agree. Adam Goodman, thank you. I'm so incredibly appreciative. We'll talk soon. That's Adam Goodman. I'm Kevin Cerilli. Does it for me. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. 